0: If you'd like to grab your Bible this morning and open up to Matthew 11, and uh, if you also want to grab your bulletin there, got a couple of quick announcements before we move into the message this morning. Uh, First of all, you'll see there that we have some praises. Uh, One thing that we got quotes back on and made the decision on this week is to get some new insurance, which is lower price and better coverage. So God gave us favor there. And you may remember several months ago, I asked you to be praying that the Lord would help us to save two thousand dollars. And um, we saved about a thousand dollars from what we were paying. And the company that we used to have was going to raise it another thousand plus. So God answered that prayer very specifically. It's amazing how sometimes He does that. And then also, if you were in the fellowship hall this morning, you saw we got room dividers. Uh, another church, sister church, was willing to let us borrow those. So. We got space to have more classes now, and that is a blessing. And then you'll also see above praises there that we have an announcement this morning. And uh, I haven't had a pulpit side chat for a while, so I want to just explain what that announcement is. This uh, Sunday is the last Sunday that we're going to be having Children's Church. And the reason for that is because over the last year, um, especially the last nine months, as we've tried to relaunch this ministry... We've had 10 or 11 volunteers, and um, we're, we've had seven of them that, that are no longer able to commit for various reasons. So I know it's a little disheartening to us as a church because this is one of those things that we, um, we really want to see. I know we've talked about over the last 18 months how much we remember there being lots of kids coming. But I really believe that it's the Lord doing something still. We're going to try our best to keep uh, Sunday school going at this time. If, if we don't have teachers, then we'll just have to have uh, kids with their parents or guardians that particular Sunday. We are going to keep trying to do Sunday school at this point. Um, but we can't do necessarily everything that we wanted to. And I know that sometimes that's hard for churches to understand. And, um, but I, I want to share with you that it's really not that abnormal. In revitalization, it typically takes five to seven years to rebuild a children's ministry. It usually takes that long. And I know that's a hard one for us because we have such a heart to minister to kids and we have throughout the years. But if I'm being really honest, I think that the Lord throughout this process has really been taking away, in a sense, an idol from us. I think the children's ministry is something we've looked at that... If we had a larger group, we'd feel that we're in a good place. And I think the Lord is not allowing that to work to show us that he is still working in his church and through his church. But he's just not working in it the way that we have wanted yet. So we're going to continue to try some things. And I know some of this is going to be awkward. Um, But we're going to continue to, with Sunday School, ask that you as as parents or grandparents bringing in kids would check them in and pick them up from Sunday School every week. And I know we've not been uh, real um, adamant on that. It, It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense why we would do that without a larger group of kids. But that's a habit to get in, whether we have four or whether we have 50. And this coming year, we still have a lot of things in the hopper, and I I hope that uh, you'll want to be part of it. There's many things we're still going to do missions-wise. The difference is, I think the Lord has taken away the, the strategy and the hope that we've had of having a children's program. But there's still a lot of children's missions opportunities we have coming up. So once again, we'll have VBS, and we're trying to work with four churches this year to do that again. And Family Day Carnival, as as well as a VBS Sunday like we did last year, we're looking at doing all of that again. And we're going to have a tweak this year. We're planning to have on that Sunday, when we wrap up VBS, um, having Sunday school available. And we're going to launch to a brand new curriculum for Sunday school with our team. And that's going to be a curriculum that is a lot like this yellow book, really, that we're using for adults. It's a lot like that for kids. And so over the course of three years, it takes kids through the entire story of the Bible, and we'll be starting that off uh, that Sunday. And so our hope is to connect with parents and uh, with kids, as well as to have a special service like we did last year. And then this year we have a couple of other things uh, that we're excited about being able to do. And that is we're looking forward for four weeks after VBS to have family camp. And so on Wednesday nights, we're thinking 6 to 8 o'clock for four weeks, we're going to have basically VBS for the whole family. And it's going to be tied into what VBS was. And I'm sure we have to pull the tug-of-war rope out. And we're going to have to pull some other things out too, to uh, just some of those games and fun that we're planning. But that's going to be coming up. And then we also are looking forward to doing a back-to-school supplies giveaway. And, and we're trying to work with the school to get a list of names of teachers so that we can adopt a teacher adopt praying for them throughout the year and to look at how we can serve them and then in the fall one of the things that we're going to tweak is we've done our trunk or treat for many years but this year we're going to change that to being a family festival so rather than decorating trunks what we're planning to do is to really make it more of a family atmosphere and open it up to the community so We may have some classic cars for a car show. Uh, We are hoping to have a photo backdrop for families to be able to take their Christmas photo with and to just have some games like cornhole or washers and the chili and all that. But instead of focusing on what I know this year disappointed many of us, rather than focusing on the number of kids that come, let's focus on the number of connections we're able to have. Because I know that sometimes we expect certain things But God is working in ways that we don't expect. Let's remind ourselves of all the things that God has done last year. We do have some kids coming on a consistent basis, and they're hungry to learn. And we're going to focus on pouring into who God's bringing. We've seen our Sunday school classes double, which is a blessing. We've seen an excitement about God's Word. We've seen our church family grow. It may not be the way that we thought, but God is at work and He's doing something. So as we keep on working and looking forward toward this coming year, I know that that's an announcement that probably catches some of us by surprise, uh, but that's the reason why behind it. Uh, We don't want to overextend our team, and we don't have enough people to keep that going. So I I won't uh, belabor that point. If there's other questions, I'd be glad to talk with you or try to, to explain other things if you have other questions. But this morning, if you're opening up to Matthew 11, let's dive into the message. Let's look at what the Lord has to say to us. And I don't usually say this, but if you missed uh, Sunday night last week, I think you would really benefit from going back and listening to the recording. It's up on the podcast. It's up on the website. Uh, Richard Simmons came and taught on Isaiah with us and did a great job. And he's one of those teachers that, uh, at least for me, I think just always encourages you and inspires you to learn more about the Bible. Um, after he came last week, went to dinner with him and I, and I asked him, Richard, how many times have you taught through the Bible? And he's, he's lost count, five or six probably. He's taught through the entire Bible. And so I think you'll really benefit if you go back and listen to as he shares how Isaiah uh, was prophesying and pointing the way to Jesus. I don't usually do that, but I'd encourage you to go back and I think you'll really benefit uh, from that if you do. But this week, we're diving into Matthew 11, and we're actually going to be wrapping up this series a little early, because last week, I went beyond my notes, and I covered about three things that I wasn't planning to. So we're going to wrap up Matthew 11 today, and then next week, we're going to take a journey in seeing this same theme of rest in the Old Testament, and then after that, we're going to begin to get into our next series, which is going to be through a book of the Bible, and that book is going to be Nehemiah. And then just to whet your appetite for late spring, early summer, sometime in that, that time frame, we're going to begin to walk through a gospel together as well. And so, you know, maybe there's some of those parables you've never understood or a saying of Jesus, you just always wonder what it meant. I think it's going to be a, a neat journey for us to walk through that together. But this morning, if you're in Matthew 11 with me, if you would stand in honor of reading God's word, and if you would look at verses 28 through 30 with me, Uh, We are going to zero in on these again this morning. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word for the last time to this passage in, in this series, I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you will once again tailor-make your message to each and every one of us. Father, even when there may be disappointments or burdens, things that we just did not see coming that come on the horizon, we can come to you in the midst of those. And Father, as we look specifically at learning from Jesus' heart this morning and what he's telling us about his character and the new way in which he's called us to live as believers, I just pray that you will take each of these things, where individually we need these in our life, and apply them to us clearly, help us to understand, and Father, help us to simply follow, to choose to take on your yoke. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat this morning. So last week we touched on three themes of Jesus, and and we zeroed in on one. Uh, We focused on his yoke. And we focused on what that yoke is. But in context, we also saw that the Lord spoke of this yoke in connection with an invitation to come to Him. So the yoke was a symbol of choosing to learn, to choosing to walk through life partnered to Him. He's using an illustration here that the people in His day understood. It was an invitation to a daily walk of discipleship with Him. And He said that if we would make this choice that we would come to know Him... And we would find rest for our souls. So we see this call to take a yoke upon us uh, and learn from him a different way to do life, to be paired to him, not to be self-sufficiently carrying our own burden. And we've seen that we are invited to know Jesus personally. He's not saying just come to me with whatever ails you and I'm going to take it away. But he's saying come and get to know me in the midst of it and through it. And learn my heart which is gentle and lowly. It's a personal invitation. It's not just an invitation to come and be fixed. But an invitation to come and know him. And this morning we're going to dive more deeply into two themes that Jesus pairs together here in this passage as well. And those themes are learning Jesus' heart. And the ease of his yoke. So, the overall context of the passage, to reset the stage several weeks ago, is Jesus is calling his people and calling the crowds to come and to repeatedly come to him. He tells us that having a weariness or having a burden is the qualification to come to him, not the excuse to stay away. He also points to the fact that we have been chosen children of God, that he has revealed to us who have childlike faith, who are babes, to come to Him, that we have a new identity, and we explored that in Romans 8. We also saw that our God is sovereign and in control of everything, but we as believers have the privilege of knowing Him as Father. We also saw that the come that Jesus speaks of in the original language is urgent. It is an urgent invitation to come to Him. And not so much about fixing an issue or a problem and just taking that away, but about calling us to know Him personally. And it's this question of, do we desire health with Jesus? Do we desire to know Him more? Or do we simply desire our problem to be fixed? You know, you see that in the ministry of Jesus as well. There's some that come to Him, they just want the healing, they just want the benefit. They don't want to know Him. Jesus always desires for us to know Him, not to just take care of whatever a problem is. We also saw that there are barriers to coming, the double-mindedness we can deal with, the lack of brokenness, or the desiring to be fixed rather than made whole. But Jesus offers a different yoke, a different way of doing life than what we are naturally accustomed to. And last week, we also saw that there is a difference in how the Lord has called us to be his friend. When Jesus was speaking to the disciples in his kind of last message, if you will, around the table at the Last Supper, he talks to the disciples and tells them, I'm no longer going to call you servants, but I'm going to call you friends, because there was a change in their relationship. Now, it's true that we are servants of the Lord, but we are not to simply come to him as slaves. We're slaves in the sense of loyalty to him as our master. But he's called us much deeper than that, not to just do for him, but to be his son, to be his daughter, to know him personally, to go from simply serving him and working for him to knowing him and knowing him personally. And Jesus talked about this when he was teaching the disciples about knowing his heart. And when he said, I'm going to now call you friends. And so this morning, the first thing I want us to look at is Jesus's heart. And have we learned this point number one this morning? There's nothing like being weary to receive the kindness of the Lord. There's nothing like going through a time in our life when we're at the end of ourself to experience the good thing that God is so kind in the midst of that. You really learn Jesus' heart usually in the midst of something difficult, do you not? It's usually not in the midst of everything going well that we really come to see His heart and His comfort the way that we do in the midst of times that are more challenging. There was an author, his name is uh, Dane Ortland. He wrote a book a couple of years ago, 2020 actually is when it came out, and it is completely on this aspect of Jesus' heart. He's titled that book, Gentle and Lowly. And he says this, I think it's real helpful. He says, My dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him. In the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, There's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. This is not who he was to everyone, however. Jesus made this invitation, but the crowds many times rejected him, did they not? But what an amazing thing that throughout all four gospel accounts... There's only one place right where we're at this morning where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And it's an invitation to come to know him in the midst of anything and everything. We can't know Jesus' heart unless we come to the place of humbling ourselves, Unless we choose to take on his yoke. And it begins with repentance. And this morning, if you would turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to highlight some things here. 2 Peter chapter 3 is really a passage that deals with repentance, but it deals with repentance by helping us understand what this word is about. That's a term we've probably heard before, but do we know what it means? So 2 Peter chapter 3, it's, it's Peter's second letter that he's writing, and I want to highlight just a few things that take place throughout this passage. In verse 1, Peter says, I'm writing to you now this second epistle. Well, that makes sense. It's 2 Peter. And here's why he wrote it. In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So Peter was writing to stir them up and to stir up their mind. Interesting. goes on to say in verse 2 that you may be mindful that you'll be thinking about, that you will be considering this, mindful of the words which were spoken of before by the holy prophets and the commandments. And so he's trying to remind them of God's word. And then in verse 3, he talks about knowing this first. There's going to come those scoffing and mocking in the last days and walking after other things, choosing to serve different lords. Notice the knowing there. That has to do with the mind. It has to do with um, thinking something. And in verse 5... Peter contrasts those who are not bearing in mind the things of God by describing them this way. Again, referring to the mind. For they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water. In other words, in the last days, people will willfully forget that God is creator. Interesting that he said that. It goes on to say in verse 8 and 9, But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And what, what Paul uh, or Peter here actually is saying is he's not saying there's some type of hidden code to what a day means. What he's saying essentially is that time is irrelevant to God's plan. One day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is as one day. God can do incredible things in a very short period of time. Maybe you saw this week it was encouraging that at a college there is a revival that's been going on for multiple hours nonstop in a Christian college in our nation. And that's encouraging to see. It's encouraging to see when God's spirit moves. And in an instant of time, time is irrelevant with God. He can pour out his spirit and do much more than we can do over the course of thousands of years. So that's what verse 8 is saying. But then it goes on to say this in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. God's not forgetting his promises. Remember what we looked at in Isaiah 55 this morning in our scripture reading. That God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But his word is like rain. It's like snow that comes down from heaven and waters the earth. And it will not return unto him void. So God's not slack concerning his promise. Time is irrelevant to him accomplishing his plan. And it goes on to say, as some count slackness, some think that there's been too much time that's passed and that God's not going to be faithful. But it goes on to say, but God is long-suffering toward us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. And there's that word to repentance. Repentance in Greek is a word that means to change your mind. Sometimes we talk about repentance about changing our lives. And it's true. If the Lord is getting a hold of our minds and we surrender our life, our lives will change. Our lives will bear new fruit. But repentance is fundamentally about changing our minds. That's what the word means. In James 2.17, it says this about faith. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, our faith is going to change us. It does change our life. It has works tied to it. Faith changes us. Faith changed me from being, when I was very young, from being pharisaical and harsh. Faith changed my heart. It replaced it with some compassion and gentleness that was not there before. But I want us to really get this. We don't change hearts through the affections. We change the heart, we get to the heart through the mind. Peter appeals to their thinking throughout chapter 3, and he ties it together by saying the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is he doing? He continues to present truth to our minds. Just think about this for a minute. Why does Satan target public schools? and universities, and entertainment, and cultural ideologies. Why was there this recent Grammy Awards show or whatever that was so horrible? Why does Satan target those things? Because if he can get to the mind, he can get the heart. And that's his strategy. And so what repentance is, is giving our mind to the Lord. Having our mind getting back to the Lord, and then it changes our heart. But you see, When we try to focus on the affections rather than the heart, we miss the power of how God works. He's called us numerous times in Scripture, let us come now and reason together. He says, hear what I'm saying. He says, consider what I'm saying. Have not, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow if you turn to me. The Lord appeals to our mind, and if we listen to Him, it will change our heart, it will change our life, it will transform everything. Church, what Paul and Jesus taught was solid theology and doctrine. I want us to notice this, because there's a lie in our culture today that we need to dumb things down as Christians because people are immature or don't understand things in their walk. But did Paul or Jesus do that? I don't think so. May God forgive us for neglecting from standing on His Word and trying instead to attract the world. Far too often, that is what our nation And our churches across our nation have turned to. But God can forgive us and He can revive His church. But there is a truth we have to come to understand. Apart from Him, we can do absolutely nothing. We can do absolutely nothing apart from Him. It has to be by His power, by His Spirit, by His Word alone. Grounded in His truth alone. Churches have too often embraced the lie of trying to sway the heart rather than presenting truth to the mind. And the result has been weak doctrine, little Bible, psycho babble, and easy believism that has deceived many. The temptation that too often Satan ensnares us with is to try to attract the world rather than call the world to Christ. I bet we can recognize that in our own lives at times, do we not? It's so much easier to try to be an attractive example, to focus on, Lord, help me live a way that would be attractive for you. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. But it's not the way we live that changes people. It's Jesus and what he did. We can never live good enough to attract someone to Christ. We can never be perfect enough. And if that's what we're trusting in, we're missing what Jesus is saying here when he says, come to me and take on my yoke and learn of my heart. His invitation is to get to know Him because that is what changes us. If we want revival, as one has said, we have to get rid of the high places. What are the high things in our life? What is the high thing in your life or my life that keeps us from where God wants us to be? In Scripture, in 2 Corinthians ten five, it says this. This is the power of the Word of God in the life of the believer. It casts down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and it brings every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Notice how the mind is referenced multiple ways there once again. Arguments, exalting itself, the knowledge of God, bringing thoughts into captivity and obedience to Christ. Not an easy believe appeal, but a clear appeal of the truth. Secondly, this morning, in verse 29, Jesus calls us to a new lifestyle. Verse 29, to reset the stage for us there again, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So notice that Jesus is appealing to them. He's appealing to them to make a choice, and he's appealing to them to learn something that has to do with our mind. And as we come to learn of Him, we also come to know Him. Do you see that connection? To learn of Jesus and from Jesus, though we have to stop paying attention to the other voices. And you know those other voices. They rattle around like racquetball in your head. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the other voices that are trying to keep us to learn other things and keep us away from the Lord and carrying things on ourselves and our own. Our walk with the Lord is more important than any other responsibility that we burden ourselves with. It's more important than anything else that we burden ourselves with. And look at how Jesus lived. Think about this for a minute. Did he live by what he was supposed to do culturally? Did he do what his family wanted him to do? Especially John chapter 7. You can read some stories of that. Did Jesus do what his earthly family wanted him to do? Or did he do what his father directed him to do? Did He do what the crowds wanted? Did He do what the disciples wanted? Or was He so in sync with His Father that He did His Father's will? Even when it cost Him greatly, He obeyed. In John chapter 14, if you turn there with me this morning, we're going to outline just a few ways in which we see Jesus call us to this new lifestyle. Some markers, if you will, or some results. Uh, some indications of having this new lifestyle that Jesus says we're called to. So John chapter 14 this morning, verses 12 through 18. And this is going to be that uh, first um, bullet point there for you. Greater works. I think what Jesus says here is astounding. It's always boggled my mind in what he says here. John chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Greater works. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these will he do because I go to my father and whatever you ask in my name, I will do that. The father may be glorified in the son. If you will ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Notice how the Holy Spirit's described the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus said that if we follow him, we will do greater works. Why? Because Jesus was going to ascend into heaven. He's awaiting for the day he comes back. And his church, his followers, were called to continue on the mission that he started, were we not? And so in that sense, we would do greater things through the power of the Spirit. When Jesus was here, he was fully God, fully man. He was limited to be in one place at one time. But now every one of us are called to be indwelled by the Spirit of God. And notice that not only does Jesus point to this astounding truth, but he tells us about the power we have in prayer. That if we ask anything in his name, he will do it. In other words, if we are yoked to him and linked to him, our prayers are going to be different than if we're simply trying to get something from him. But we also see a powerful truth that I think far too often we're afraid to really do. At least I notice it in my own life, I think, far too often. We can know the Lord and we can know the truth of his word and the power of his work in our life and things he's done in our life. But so often we're afraid to ask. We're afraid to ask him for things. We're afraid to ask him bold prayers. We'll we'll lift up prayers for someone that's sick or someone that's suffering or a financial difficulty. But we can be very prone to not ask him about the normal things in life. And we can be afraid to ask him even for big things because it seems or feels like it would be too selfish. But Jesus calls us to ask because we're going to his father as our heavenly father. A child can ask their mom and dad for things because they trust and they love their parents. And we are to have the same heart. Even if the answer is no, there's nothing wrong with asking. But many times we don't even ask. There's things that Satan whispers in our mind, well, that would be too selfish or too petty to pray and ask God about. But Jesus encourages us and invites us to bring everything to him, to ask him, he says, for anything in my name. And he says that he will give us his Holy Spirit as well, that he is always with us. That he's there to help us, to abide with us forever. That's something they never knew until Jesus ascended into heaven. In the Old Testament, believers only had the Holy Spirit come upon them for a season or for a reason. It was not an abiding thing. And I want you to look at verse 18 again if you're still open there. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Satan tries to get us to live as spiritual orphans. Saved by the grace of God, but living disconnected from our Father. Living as if we're still bound to the world and bound by the lies of the enemy. Not resting in being a child of God. But Jesus said He's not leaving us as orphans. He sent us His Spirit. He has told us of His Father. He's taught us how to pray. He's taught us how to follow Him. And He promises He will one day come again. It's an invitation once again, in a different way, but once again, to learn of Him. To learn of Jesus and to be reminded that everything is of grace in our walk with the Lord. Not of a cheap grace. Not, not a grace that would say that Jesus died for you, so live however you want. Not that. But rather a costly grace and a wondrous grace that God has provided everything and it's a free gift that cost the blood of Jesus. To follow Him. And so the next thing that you see there in your notes, your next bullet point is to grow in grace and knowledge. This is something we see throughout the scripture, but we're going to zero in specifically on 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, to grow in grace and knowledge, and hopefully to unpack what this means a bit this morning. The scripture says in Hosea 4:6, "My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge." In other words, if we stop growing in the word of God, we stagnate. And what happens to stagnant water? It stinks and nothing lives in it. To use an illustration my pastor used to use uh, growing up uh, for some geography of the Holy Land, which I know some of you have been looking at recently. The Jordan River flows, does it not? It flows and it gives life all along the banks of the Jordan River. There are plants and it allows the crops in Israel to grow. But there's another body of water in Israel that is stagnant and nothing lives there. It's literally known as the Dead Sea. And to quote my pastor again, denial is not a river in Egypt. In other words, people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Either we are growing in the Lord and that water is giving life. Jesus spoke of water of life, did he not? But if we stop growing, that water stagnates. And all that produces is death and stench. We're called to grow in grace. Are we hungry for more of God or are we complacent with where we are? 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Scripture teaches us here that health is about growth in both the head and the heart. To be both more gracious and more spiritually knowledgeable. Not just one or the other. Because if we just get more spiritually knowledgeable, we become pharisaical. If we just become more gracious without growing more in God's word, we just become bigger pushovers. We're called to grow in both grace and knowledge. And the reason why is because of who Jesus is. Jesus tells us back in verse 29 of our main passage, not only to take our yoke his yoke upon us, not only to learn of him, but to learn his heart, that he is gentle and lowly in heart, and then you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle, he says. He is strong enough to crush, and yet he's lowly. He's humble, and his humility is not weakness. It is strength under control. Jesus was lowly, scripture says. He chose to live a life of a posture of a servant rather than using his strength to coerce or force others. And he calls us to learn this of him. He calls us to learn who he really is. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would turn there with me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we learn an example of how Jesus is calling us to live in this world. And specifically, this is one of Paul's last letters, could have very well been the last letter he wrote to Timothy, his uh, young son, spiritual son in the faith. And he writes to him, encouraging him about ministry. And, and really, everything he's going to say here is pointed to experiencing and living the example of Jesus, of living gentle and lowly as Jesus walked. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, we will start there in verse 1. We'll kind of jump around there a little bit in this passage. But in verse 1 and 2... Paul begins by saying, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He always has to begin with grace because we can never earn it and never deserve it. We can never be good enough. It's always the free gift that Jesus has already done on our behalf. Verse 2. And these things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so Paul... Calls him to the discipleship process there and talks about how that takes place. And then if you jump down to verse 14, we see once again the appeal to the mind. It says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Have you ever been in a conversation like that where where people are just arguing about minutia about words in the Bible rather than really getting to the heart of what they mean? He tells them, don't waste time doing that. It it has no profit and it simply ruins those who are hearing. Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself to God. That's a very interesting choice of words, to present yourself to God. What does Jesus call us to do in our main passage? To take on his yoke. We just present ourselves to him. We allow our shoulders and our neck to receive his yoke. Be diligent to present yourself to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymeneus and Philetus are of this sort. So Paul names names here. He deals head on with the fact that these guys are getting caught up in these idle babblings. That's not gossip that Paul is doing. He is dealing with things as Jesus did. And then verse 23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Again, repentance there in context is referring to the idea of coming to your senses. And we're even going to see that in the next verse. The idea of having our mind changed to where we come to then know the truth and not to continue to embrace a lie. And verse 26 clarifies this even more. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. The way that Paul calls Timothy here, who was imperfect, was to model leadership the way that Jesus perfectly does, with a heart of humility and a heart of lowliness. Jesus has that heart toward all of those who are his own. But for those who do not know Jesus, that is not uh, the way that they will know him. They will know him as Lord. They will know him as conqueror. He is both judge and savior, but he's savior alone of those who come to him. We also see in John 14, 6 this morning, our next bullet point. So, not only is there this lifestyle of greater works because we're now yoked to Jesus, this lifestyle of growing in grace and knowledge, but there is a lifestyle rooted in truth, not lies. Rooted in truth, not lies. John chapter 14 and uh, verse 6, Jesus tells us about his identity. He says, I am the way. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to Jesus. There's not multiple uh, roads that lead to heaven. There's only one way. And He is the truth incarnate. He is not a lie. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it tells us, "...as you have received Christ as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught." abounding with thanksgiving. It is Jesus' truth that sets us free. It's always His truth that sets free. Not an experience, not a feeling, not something that we can do, some religious exercise. It's His truth that sets us free. It's His truth that demolishes the strongholds of our flesh, the world, and the devil, that have us bound May we never say that God is silent while our Bible remains closed. Because he's spoken and he's given us his instruction. And the word of God is our weapon. We learn that throughout the scriptures, especially in Ephesians chapter 6. But I think we often forget how we apply that weapon. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. But Ephesians 6 also teaches us that prayer is how we apply it. Is that not what Jesus did when he was in the wilderness? He not only quoted the scripture and knew the scripture, but he prayed it. And that's why Satan ran away. And prayer is how we apply the truth of the weapon of God's word. Here's a kind of helpful illustration for that. There was an atheist a number of years ago that he was a very brilliant man and he chose to memorize the entire book of Psalms. He could quote it verbatim, every single verse, every single chapter, quite a feat. He could quote it backwards and forwards. But this atheist missed the power of God's word because he didn't pray it. He memorized every single prayer there in the prayer book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. But he missed it because he did not have the power of prayer. And so how do we apply God's word, the truth of God's word, through prayer? And then lastly this morning under that particular um, bullet point section You have been enlisted, not impressed. You've been enlisted, not oppressed. We've been enlisted in the army of God. We've not been forced. We've not been pressed into service. We have been enlisted into His army. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, it says this, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And I want to dive a little farther up in that passage as well. So if you didn't turn to Romans 12 already, let's turn there and let's back all the way up to verse 1. Let's unpack a little bit more uh, what Paul is saying. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, I beseech you. He's, He's seeking us to do something. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, That you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say to you through the grace that has been given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, we see that because our God is merciful, we are called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. See, when Jesus says, come and take my yoke upon you and learn of me, he's calling us to a lifestyle of sustainable sacrifice. He's not calling us to make a one-time sacrifice where we, we lay it all down and then it's all over. He's calling us to live a lifestyle of continuing to follow him. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice, to daily crucify our flesh and follow Him. And in verse 2, He explains to us that this involves something. It involves not being conformed, which means not being squeezed into the mold, the idea of Plato, not being squeezed into the mold and molded to be like the world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to be transformed by God's Word. So that what? So that we can prove we can test and discern God's good, pleasing and perfect will, that we can know what his will is and where he's directing us. And then from there, moves on to verse three, which I read earlier, which is where Paul says, God has given his grace to me. Can you say that this morning? Has God given you his grace? Have you received your salvation from him? Because of that, Paul says, I've experienced this. I've lived this. I've received the grace of God. And so on that basis, he's going to bear testimony of what he's going to say next. And he says, To everyone who is among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Many times what Satan does to ensnare us is he gets us to believing one of two things. Either to believing that we are above and beyond stumbling... And so then we're open to what he's going to send our way or to believe that we're being hard pressed into service. If we're going to serve Christ, Satan likes to make Jesus's yoke out to be scary. How many times have I had conversations with people? I bet you have too, who say one of these days when hell freezes over, I'll become a Christian because they're afraid of what that means. They're afraid that taking this step is going to be a hard life to give up the things that they're following. But Jesus is inviting us to a much better life. Yes, there are things we still carry yoke to him, but I'm sure you can testify this morning if you have followed him as your Lord and Savior, it's worth exchanging that, is it not? Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Not to think that carrying our burden or our way of life is somehow better than following Jesus. But to think once again, there's that think phrase, to think soberly, to have a proper view of what truth is. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid the price. The Lord has borne the burden. And we can do absolutely nothing on our own to think soberly about ourselves and recognize none of us is beyond falling. None of us is beyond being able to carry these things on our own. But rather we are called to exercise, and this is key, the faith that He has given us. Not the faith we want to have, which one day we may have, but the faith that He has given us now. Again, it's a common question. I think we can probably say that many of us have heard this type of thing often through conversations. Someone saying they want their faith to be stronger. If my faith was stronger, then I would. I think we hear that a lot. Then I would be more dedicated. Then I would do this. Then I would do that. Scripture says just start with the measure of faith that God has given you, start with what He's provided. Come to Him even if it's with a limp and weary and broken, but you start with what He has already given you. just had some conversations this week about that. A guy that was struggling with something, and it came down in the point of the conversation of, but do you want to obey God? You can sit here and talk about how living the way you're living is not right and it's horrible and pray for me, but do you want to follow Christ? We have to make that choice to exercise the faith we have, even if it seems small, even if it seems like we just have a mustard seed and it's not going to change anything to turn to the Lord. That's how He calls us to come to Him. That way and in the midst of that. Second Corinthians this morning, if you would turn there. Second Corinthians chapter 10, along with this point as well. We've been enlisted, not oppressed. We're part of His army. We've not been pressed into hard service. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, teach us about how we fight this warfare. And there's a helpful little exercise I'm going to give you as well, uh, which you're welcome to do in your Bible, but I realize you may not want to when I describe it. You may find it more helpful to print the verses off or to, um, to write them down and do this. But I'm going to first of all read this passage as if I X'd out, put a line through everything in these three verses that have to do with God. If I X'd everything out about the Lord, notice how life is described. Walking in the flesh, according to the flesh, carnal, strongholds, arguments, exalts everything against the knowledge of God, and in captivity... That is what it is if you were to take God out of this passage. That is what life is like if we take Him out of the equation. But let's see what Paul is saying when we read the whole passage. When God is involved in these things. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For if the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do you see how that is so different when we learn of Jesus and bring him into the picture? Jesus is inviting us to take on his yoke, and he's inviting us to learn of him and to learn his way of doing life. And there is power in walking with Jesus. There's power in his name. There's a reason why people can... Pray in the name of Jesus, not even know the Lord, and the Lord answers the prayer. That's why there's people, it says in Matthew chapter 7, that will say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name, we heal the sick in your name. I think these are literal things that it's saying there. And yet, they will hear from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. There is power in the name of Jesus. But he's not called us to just know his name. He's called us to know him. Have we come to him? Are we learning that he is gentle and lowly in heart? But do we also recognize that we are enlisted, we're not oppressed? You are in a war. Your Christian life is not a nice add-on to just make life easier or make hard times a little bit better. You're in a war, and there is a target on your back. Satan wants to take you out. Examine that truth in this passage. There are strongholds that are pulled down by the power of God's word. We have weapons that he has given us through his truth, through his word, through prayer. It casts down arguments. It casts down the things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And it brings into captivity those thoughts that need to be made obedient to Christ. We make them obedient to his word. We come to Christ. We take on his yoke and we learn of him. One more passage under this point this morning. Philippians chapter 4, if you turn there. Philippians chapter 4. This, this uh, particular chapter teaches us about something that our culture gets wrong all the time. And that is that we are to fill our mind with truth. We're not called to empty our minds. Eastern mysticism and New Age, they both teach that we need to empty our mind and achieve a state of nothingness. Buddhism teaches that. Empty yourself, uh, achieve a place of stoicism, nothingness to where things don't impact you, and then you can engage with the world. But the Bible never tells us to do that. It doesn't tell us to empty ourselves. It tells us to fill ourselves, to fill our minds with the truth of God's Word, not just empty it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, notice this. Clearly, it's talking about filling. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, that's good news, not the normal news. If there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now do you notice the connection here. That when he says the God of peace will be with you, there's a prerequisite before that of what are you filling your mind with? You may remember last week I shared a, a quote from a commentary with you that when we come to Jesus, we experience peace with God. We're restored to a right relationship with him. But as we continue to walk with the Lord, it is a life of obedience that then allows us to receive the peace of God. Those are different things. We have peace with God. We're restored to a right relationship through Jesus. But to have the peace of God, we have to be walking with Him. In other words, if we're filling ourselves and chasing all the other stuff and bucking the yoke, why do we expect Jesus to bless us with His peace? We're pretty good at thinking about the negative things. and That's how our culture is geared. But the Lord calls us not to empty our mind, but to fill it with His truth to fill it with everything that is true, lovely, pure, praiseworthy, virtuous, of good report. Thirdly this morning, the easy yoke that Jesus refers to, the easy yoke means that it is well-fitting and it comes with a light burden. This word easy actually in the Greek is the idea of being well-suited to you. It doesn't rub against your neck in a wrong way. It's not too small. It's not too big. It's not chafing. That's what it means by easy yoke. It's well-fitting around your neck. It fits very well there on our shoulders as we follow Christ. And so to reset the stage in verse 30 of our main text, Jesus said, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke is going to be well-fitting. I want to share with you a quote of one commentary. I think it puts this very well. When someone looks at the yoke of Jesus from a distance, it is easy to get all kinds of wrong ideas about it. But if we would just listen to what Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, we would take it and see what kind of a yoke it is. The yoke of Jesus is easy and light compared to the yoke of others. The yoke of Jesus is easy and light as long as we do not rebel against it. The yoke of Jesus has nothing to do with worries that are forbidden to us. The yoke of Jesus does not include the burdens that we choose to add to it. End quote. Satan can scare us sometimes from a distance. Like I mentioned earlier, That sometimes people say when hell freezes over, then I'll become a Christian. Because they're afraid of what it means to take on that yoke. But if we truly take it on, we we learn that life is much better, do we not? There's things that we are not even called to carry, worries that are forbidden to us, because Jesus has said that He has taken care of those. All burdens are temporary for those who are in Christ. And underneath that point, the first bullet point there for you, Christ's yoke sets us free from the stress we bear on our own. You see, there's no more basis For worry or fear, it has no need to rule in our lives when we're living the way that Jesus has called us to live. If you want to open up to Matthew chapter 6, this very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount explains the different way in which Jesus has called us to live. And notice there's a way in which we're to empty a lot of those stresses that we tend to hold on to. I think the last time I preached on this was... um, was during the beginning of COVID. I think it was the very first Sunday when churches closed down. And I remember uh, our church family at that time that I was serving, there were many that went through layoffs, career changes, the whole gamut of fear that we all remember that went on in that time. And there were many that were homebound and and struggling with that isolation. In the midst of this time, we opened up to Matthew chapter 6, and we remembered the words of our Savior and what He told us about here. Verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or your body, about what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows all things that you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do we not see here that Jesus has forbidden some worry to us? Is that not what his yoke teaches us when we learn of him? There's a lot of stress that we have a tendency to carry of these things here that the Lord says, don't worry about it. I know and I'll take care of it. Rather, we're called to live our life focusing on the mark. Matthew six thirty three, Seeking him and his righteousness. And when we do, he'll take care of everything else. And I remember in that time... A couple years ago, opening up to this passage, there was all that stuff happening when COVID began. But you know what the Lord did time and time again in every single story in my church family then? The Lord took care of his people. He knows us. He knows what we go through. Even in the midst of the world turning upside down, we can trust him. We can follow him. And he calls us to do that. Nothing catches him by surprise, and nothing is insurmountable for our God. He is in control. His resources are never limited, and therefore, if we're really being honest and if we're really meditating on his truth, fear and worry have no place in our life because they're not grounded in reality. Reality is that God is in control. But what does Satan do? He deceives, he oppresses, and he enslaves. He gets us to focus on the wrong thing, to carry the burden that we've not been designed to carry. Lastly there, under your uh, your last bullet point, compared to eternity, all afflictions are light and momentary. We are encouraged to change our perspective. Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is going to teach the believers about things he went through. And I love the heading... Um, In my Bible on how it, uh, you know, you have those headings over different sections of verses, how it puts this. It is the heading of cast down but unconquered. Paul's going to talk about some things he went through. He went through some stuff that was downcasting, that was difficult. But it did not conquer him and it did not conquer his fellow companions. And he encourages us to set our mind on eternity that all afflictions are light and temporary for the believer. We're encouraged to change our perspective to the truth of God's word. So uh, 2 Corinthians there, chapter 4, I'll start in verse 7 and 9. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And down in verse 16, he goes on to say, Therefore we do not lose heart. For even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's what faith is, is it not? In Hebrews chapter 11, the substance of things that we do not see. The evidence of things unseen. For if the things which are seen are temporary, the things which are not seen are eternal. We are reminded here and encouraged to set our minds on an eternal perspective. Once again, Satan is going to try to ensnare our mind. He seeks to ensnare the mind of kids in our culture and adults as well. Why does he target the mind? Because he's after the heart. He's after the life. And if he gets our mind, then he tends to get our whole life, does he not? And we begin to live under that yoke. Either we fill our mind with the truth of Christ and we come under his yoke, which is so much lighter. It's still a a yoke of something we carry and pull with him, but we're doing it yoked to Jesus, not on our own. I want to share with you, um, this is multiple quotes actually in this commentary from multiple people, so I'm not going to delineate who they all are, but I think this really summarizes this well for us as we wrap up this passage today. You may find it helpful to even just close your eyes and think about it, or just consider what this is saying. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how he summarizes this passage. Jesus summarized this wonderful call to come to him with this assurance. The yoke is easy and the burden is light because he bears it with us. Born alone, it might be unbearable, but with Jesus, it can be easy and light. When training a new animal like the ox to plow, the ancient farmers often yoked it to an older, stronger, more experienced animal. Who bore the burden and guided the young animal through the learning process? The word easy in the Greek is krestos. It can mean well fitting. In Palestine, the ox yokes were made of wood. The yoke was carefully adjusted so that it would fit well, not gall the neck of the patient beast. The yoke was tailor made to fit the ox. This isn't a call to a lazy or indulgent life. There is still a yoke to bear and a burden to carry. Yet with Jesus and in Jesus, they are easy and light. Jesus' yoke is easy, not because it makes lighter demands, but because it represents entering into a discipleship relationship. If your yoke is hard and your burden is heavy, then we can say that it isn't his yoke or his burden. You aren't letting Him bear it with you. Because Jesus says plainly, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning as we close out this chapter, and we consider Jesus' invitation to just come to Him, is there anything that you need to lay down before Him this morning? Or is there anything that you need to seek Him about? We will uh, play a song on the screen in a moment. And it will just be a time for us to respond however the Lord would lead us. But during this time, what is the Lord saying to you? Is it his yoke that you are bearing or is it your own? Is there something that you need to bring to him? We've learned a lot, but now how do we apply that truth in prayer? Let's do that individually and personally during this time.